your job then becomes, how do I market better than my competition? How do I price more efficiently? How do I keep my costs as low as possible? That to me is a less exciting game than how do I make the best thing that I possibly can. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Today, we are talking about how to build an impressive low to mid seven figure company by not productizing entirely, by actually building a service that focuses on high end companies. And today's guest is going to talk us through that. I really enjoyed today's episode. It's the kind of business that it's all about execution, it's not necessarily about the idea, Ian. And today's guest has managed to grow a multi-seven-figure business. It's going to be a really great interview. I really super enjoyed it. But first, I want to do some news here at the top. One of the things today's guest asked me is, what the heck is that baby saying at the end of your podcast? More on that. <laughs> Speaking of which, a listener wrote to me last week and said, hey, are you guys ever going to change iPod at the end of your outro music to iPhone or whatever people are using nowadays? I don't know. I'm putting it out there for the audience. Should we change it or should we leave it as a relic to our old age? Fun fact, I was at a South by Southwest Cool Kids meetup last night. We were talking about content creation. I was representing the noble modality of podcasting, whereas many others were doing cooler, newer things like short videos. Notably, some young gentlemen who own a podcasting services company, when they heard how long we've been podcasting, they were shocked. They asked me how we did it back in the days. Like we're officially that age now where young people just can't imagine how we survived. <laughs> how did you do it? Did you transfer it from tape onto hard drive, dial up AOL? No, we just used those funky looking headphones that call center people use and uh, uploaded our tracks to. I guess it was Apple iTunes was the place where it was iTunes. Man. Did, uh, I remember uh, the call to action a lot of weeks was like, go leave us a five-star review. If you have four stars, contact me directly, please. Well, nowadays you get it in your mind that you want to listen to a podcast about basket weaving. You jump on Spotify, you type in basket weaving, you get there. Back then you had to plan ahead. You had to be like, tomorrow afternoon, I'm taking a drive. And you know, it would be great. <laughs> is if I could learn some lifestyle business tips while I'm on that drive. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to first clear some space on my iPod because it's all, it's all packed full of Fleetwood Mac and I got to make some room. <laughs> and then you download it from iTunes onto your laptop and transfer to your iPod. <laughs> Those were the good old days. <laughs> what a piece of news. We can't all have good news around here. We often come on this podcast and say how great we're doing Finally, in Q1, I got to say, at Dynamite Jobs and Remote First Recruiting, we are just not at all having a great quarter at all. In fact, we've seen some pretty dramatic downturns, anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $40,000 a month less in revenue for us 
So we saw it in the tech space late last year. We sort of saw companies like Meta. You saw it in the news everywhere where, hey, these companies that are incredible cash stewards are just laying people off left and right. Of course, you can't underestimate the impact that Twitter has had across you know founders of public companies, especially with Elon going in there and just letting so many people go. Finally, I think not only are we seeing a hiring freeze amongst listeners of this podcast and members of our community, but we're also seeing layoffs starting to happen. The idea that as lifestyle business owners, we can float things a little longer, maybe we're a little bit more optimistic and, hey, we don't have cash stewardship standards with shareholders, right? It's our personal bank accounts or our savings, maybe an investor or two. And so we have a little bit of more leeway for optimism. But in our case, Ian, I thought we'd just share the bad news publicly in case anybody wants to sign up for our Patreon. <laughs> Sorry, that's a joke. <laughs> Might get to that point. But yeah, it's been a little bit rough, man. I think we all want to think it's not going to happen to us. Uh, you know, And I feel like uh, we're a bit of a bobber in the market here. Job posts are like 16, something I was reading the other day, 16.5% down March year over year, basically. So, and that's just for job posts. That's just for open positions that people are hiring for, not for the actual roles. So, you know, again, read these uh, labor statistics on, in the New York Times. You know, it's like all the jobs are filled. Well, our kinds of companies, they're not accounted for in that because a lot of our yeah. teams are not onshore. A lot of our teams are not reporting to the Bureau. Like no one is claiming unemployment. It will be interesting to see when and if things come back and in what way too. Because when things come back, I think people get creative, right? You get burned and you think like, hey, I, I kind of had a big team and we're kind of hum along just fine with this small team. Or, hey, with this small team plus a little chat GPT, we're going to be just fine. So I think a lot of these positions, they probably will never come back. I think in the case of some of these larger organizations, maybe they go the way of some of these lifestyle businesses, which they figure out they can hire developers for 50% less offshore and a lot of other roles as well. So in that regard, might be good for us. But yeah, I'm always just interested to see like what happens next. So we wanted to bring that up because a lot of listeners are facing downturns right now. And it's definitely something we're going to talk about here on the show in the coming weeks and months. One question I want to get to, this comes from Anonymous, who wrote us to say, I really like the 1,000 true fans concept. So the question is really about niche size. With all the data out there, you can get a general idea about the size of the pond is in any niche. So my question is, how do you think about market size? The listener outlines, say, for example, there's 45,000 of X with around 4,000 firms I need to target. So I'm thinking, you know, in order to get to that thousand true fan level, I need two to 3% of that market. So feel free to use this on the pod. I appreciate your time reading these emails. We love emails like this because it's basically like, hey, just think about these interesting topics. Talk to me about them. Here we go. So the 1,000 true fans concept is something we kind of toss around lightly. I wanted to revisit the original text. It was an article written by Kevin Kelly back in 2008 that was really a reflection on the idea, which was novel at the time, that if you wanted to be a creator, that you didn't need to be famous. If you like to shred metal, bro, you don't need millions of people to enjoy your amazing guitar tones in order to make a living out of that. You could instead 
bring fans into your writing process, bring them into the studio, do a few Kickstarters here and there. And you only really need like a thousand people who love you, who are willing to part with, say, one day's worth of their annual salary in order to support your dream and your journey because you kind of get them through the days because they can rock out to your heavenly guitar tones. That's basically the idea of a thousand true fans. And Kevin, back in 2008, was kind of, you know, one of the first people to flag this stuff up. Remember in 2005, 2006, 2007, we were hearing about Seth Godin telling us that, hey, marketing is different now. You got to be a real person. You got to be a one of one. You got to be the best in the world at something. You can't just compete for shelf space or for advertising time on the television. You got 37 signals saying, hey, let's build our software on the web now, right? And you got Gmail that just came out and it's like, hey, web software is kind of capable. And then Kevin Kelly, right on the heels of that, is basically like, hey, you don't need to be famous anymore. Think about if you wanted to start a podcast in 1998, how would you have pursued that vision? You would have said, well, I got to move to LA and I got to convince K-Rock to put me on morning drive time or not morning drive time. That would be too good. You got to get afternoon, like lunch break or whatever. You got to spend some records late at night, build a little you know, momentum, do some politicking. Eventually you build a brand and name for yourself, but you got to have a huge audience for K-Rock to be able to make their money off of you. Nowadays, you can talk about investing to 500 people every week and make a full-time living off of that. It's the Substack generation. It's the direct audience. We thought of this with our first business, Anonymous. This still, the enduring image for me was, how on earth would we sell cat furniture before Google? Well, we would need to have a rich uncle, which we didn't have, to give us some money, which we didn't have, to go rent a store in a major metro on a main street, which we didn't have, to then buy inventory to put in the store. You see where I'm going with this? The internet changed all this. And I think that's why this idea of a thousand true fans endures to this day. Now, we've added some elements, which is kind of interesting. Like We like to play around with these numbers as internet people do. What if you had, we talked about investing, that's more of like a prosumer, right? It's not quite a fan, someone rocking along to your metal, all of a sudden they're reading your investor newsletter. So maybe they're paying you 500 bucks a year. You could maybe get 500 people to do that. You're making quarter million off of that. Or we talk about all the time we're going to talk about on today's episode, how you can make millions charging clients, say like 5,000 a month. We call those 10 true clients or 20 true clients, right? So that could be, again, we're just going direct. We don't have to go to trade shows. We don't have to advertise in magazines. We just put content out there that gets us our 10 true clients. And that's going to get us to, say, 600000 If you have 10 true clients, say, spending $5,000 with you a month, that's 600000 Here's the cool part, Anonymous. You can actually combine all of them into the wedding cake, and you're about at a million dollars a year if you just stack them all together. Because... Those fans, that's the same thing as a tripwire product. Now I'm a fan. If I'm in a B2B niche, I could become a customer. And then eventually the best ones might become clients. And now you've got a million dollars in revenue. And a lot of times with these creator business models, you can support all that with a super low cost of goods sold. Your profit margins are insane. We're seeing all kinds of businesses that are like Twitter to landing page to service that are doing hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year and their cost of goods is really, really low. So I think that's sort of the modern version of this thousand true fans business model. 
One of the things we were thinking about, though, is we don't really think of addressable market like anonymous, where you say, okay, there's a million lawyers in America and like half of them work at firms like this and that's my target audience. And so why might we not want to think about things in terms of, say, demographic information? I think it's a decent place to start because it gives you an idea of like how big the market is. I mean, we've entered small markets before and we've become the big fish. That's a possibility. When you're entering a big market, chances for competition, I think, are much higher. So there could be, in, in theory, a bunch of barriers to entry that are kind of legible, right? So from the outside, you can see like, oh my God, that's a huge market, right? But really the barriers to entry can be a lot higher in those types of markets. So I don't think it's an awful idea to kind of think about your addressable market and like how big it is. A better idea would be to try and think about what your on- Buy my course. (laughs) (laughs) Would be to try and think about what your on-ramp is or what your uh, competitive advantage is, what your wedge is in there. Because I think it's, um, you can look from the outside and think like, oh my gosh, there's billions of dollars in that industry, but who is willing to give you hundreds, thousands, millions? And what would be the reason for that? And a lot of the reason for that is expertise, knowledge, time in the market, product offering, these types of things. So decent idea to see how big a market is before you enter it. Better idea is to figure out how you can win or at least how you can get your foot in the door initially. Because these things take years to play out, right? So is your first year going to be like a $10,000 year because you have zero expertise and understanding and knowledge? Or is your first year going to be a $100,000 year because you're parlaying your experience at your job into that market? I'll share like a news story, maybe like a rewriting of the history of this podcast, A Thousand True Fans. I'll share my better idea about how to do this other than demographic information. Here's how I would do it. I would basically estimate how much it takes to acquire a genuine lead customer client fan through a particular channel. Because what matters more is like their behavior. So whether like better than demographic information is their cash flow spend. So Rather than they are something, I'd want to hear they're doing something. They're spending on this. If I can take a percentage of that spend slightly better, slightly better than that, I think is even like these lawyers are spending this much here. I can get it vis-a-vis this behavior. So like a very legible example is that is like, all right, to get 10 true clients, I need to like meet 100 leads and I can do that by going to five conferences. Here's how much that'll cost, right? That's like a very basic one. But if you have a more nuanced understanding of something like TikTok or Twitter or newsletter or whatever your channel is to acquire customers, in today's day and age, it's going to be social, although in-person is very underrated and, and actually is what's working for a lot of our listeners. So something to keep in mind there. At the beginning of this podcast, we had a sense that the 1,000 true fans, especially the true customers, like that prosumer business model, was going to be ultimately where we landed. And in order to get there, we needed to visualize a podcast that a couple thousand, if not more, listen to every week. And honestly, at the time we started this podcast, we were the only podcast that existed that was talking about lifestyle, location freedom, and time freedom without selling location and time freedom as the way to get there. So Mm -hmm. we weren't selling courses. We were selling cat furniture. And I thought to myself man, everybody wants to hear about this cat furniture journey. But the second thing I thought was, yeah, for sure, we're going to get a couple of thousand people listening to that. And so I think one of the unique things about podcasting as a channel is uh, it's really hard to fake it. You know, like you have to really kind of show up 
and know what you're talking about or not know what you're talking about in a charming way or whatever. You got to figure out like, what is the angle that people are going to share that message vis-a-vis word of mouth? All right, Ian, well, speaking of having a sense for entrepreneurship and addressable market and just jumping right in and making an incredible lifestyle business for yourself, today we are speaking with Harry Morton, who's the founder of a podcast production company called Lower Street. We see people on Twitter building in public. Well, Harry like did one of these open kimono, reveal everything. Here's been my journey posts in the DC. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get an extra spritz on the face for this one. This is amazing. I had to hose myself down after reading it. I was so excited. Like immediately I shared it with producer Jane and I was like, get this man, Harry Morton on this podcast immediately. We need to talk about his journey with this podcast production company. He's built it to an impressive scale. He's currently at the low to mid seven figure annual revenue. We're not going to put a pin on it. That's crude, (laughs) which he scaled by not productizing. Yes, he swam against the advice of the show. (laughs) <laughs> the dogma that, hey, when everybody's zigging, you should zag. So here he walked with a bunch of lessons learned about creating culture, about hiring a chief operating officer, something we talk about all the time. He also described what he would do, and this is going to be the best part, if he were starting from scratch today. So as you can imagine, I was pretty excited about this one, Ian. So let's just let it rip. At the start of 2016, a month before he fired me from my last job, I told my managing director that my ambition was to start a company, one that would be acquired in five years' time. His response has always stuck with me. I just don't think you've got the sales skill and persistence to do that. Why do you think your ex-boss wanted to put you down in that moment? If I'm going to be generous to him, I think it was that he was probably a bit frustrated. I'd been brought on to, it was an event, I worked in the events and conferences industry and we ran this event, which I'm very glad to not be working for anymore. It was in the oil and gas industry, right? Like it's not something I was proud to be a part of. I was flying several times a year to the Middle East, to Asia, to Europe and to kind of run these conferences. But I was brought on to take this existing portfolio of shows, these conferences and launch one in China. They thought there was a massive market for this particular topic in China and I was brought in as a business development manager to kind of try and make that a reality. Basically go out to a bunch of the companies that we were already working with and say, hey, we're going to launch over here. Will you come join it? And what I discovered over the kind of, I guess, 18 months that I was working there is it just the market didn't want it. In that specific case, it was because all the manufacturers were European and they'd been burnt a million times by Chinese companies copying their stuff. So 18 months in, it was just really apparent. And I didn't have the guts to say, hey, boss, like this isn't going to sell. Like no one wants this. It's not going to work. I was afraid of getting fired if the thing I was designed to create was not going to be a reality. I realized on reflection that actually there probably would have been a lot more respect and a lot of sort of options, possibilities that would have come out of it if I'd just been honest about what the situation was. But I I just wasn't. So I kind of like shrank and shrank in that role of like, oh, like the walls are closing in around me. Like this thing isn't going to exist. I'm not going to have a job. What's going to happen? And I think in that moment, as he told me that I wasn't cut out for it. He, you know, in his defense, that was the evidence he had. Like I wasn't selling this thing. And he believed that there was desire for this in the market. And so he was just like, just go out and and get it kind of thing. So it's often those comments that leave a little bit of a lingering chip on your shoulder that, yeah, well, he might be right. 
And there's only one way that he's going to be wrong. <laughs> exactly. That was it. And it is a chip on my shoulder. It's not like the chip on my shoulder. I've got plenty of other much larger <laughs> kind of chips. But that was another one. That was a nice kind of uh, milestone to hit when I was writing this blog post to kind of uh, call back to that moment because it feels like a good, a nice FU moment, you know. One of the nice things about this blog post is it's, I think, similar to an episode we did with Justin Tan about Video Husky. It's a masterclass in directly from someone who's done it. Hey, here's how you could build a productized service, perhaps a little bit faster than I built mine. With that in mind, what considerations might we want to make for 2023? And maybe you could tell us a little bit about your company right now. Sure. So Lower Street is a podcast agency working with brands. So we help to sort of develop, produce, and then grow the podcasts of companies that come to us. We're kind of low to mid seven figures um, growing. We've doubled in revenue the last three years in a row, which has been pretty wild. And we're now sitting at 20 people as the day of recording. We're about to onboard someone in next week. So we'll be 21 soon. So we're working with companies like, you know, Pepsi, Ford, HPE, Boston Consulting Group. So a lot of big enterprises, also lots of smaller agencies and one-off consultants as well. But we tend to work with a lot of kind of big enterprise companies and they'll come to us and they'll say, we know that a lot of our audience is listening to podcasts. That's not a channel that we're, we're using right now. And we need help to basically take this kernel of an idea that we've got. You know, this is the kind of subject area we want to focus on. This is the audience we're looking to address. And they want someone to help them figure out, okay, what does that actually look like? What, would that, what should that show be? How's it going to be branded? What's the kind of content strategy around it? Then we're going to work with them through the actual production of recording the thing, just like we are right now, and helping to kind of prepare the hosts and write scripts and, and do all that kind of good stuff. And then once the thing is made, then we also work through like, how are we going to get the listeners that you need to actually listen to this? We run some promotion campaigns to kind of help do all that. So it's kind of an end-to-end service. And as I kind of highlighted in the post, it's been a real iteration to get up to this kind of, to go premium and go enterprise. But uh, it's really allowed us to do so much more, just better work, basically, that we've, as we've got better clients, it's allowed us to do cooler stuff that acts as our own marketing. And it's sort of this is proven to be a bit of a sort of virtuous cycle. When you conceived of the idea of starting a podcast productized service, did you have it in your mind that you would be aiming for brands like you were mentioning? No. So like I've been listening to the TMBA and I've been listening to Starts for the Rest of Us and, and all these kinds of other podcasts for a really long time. And you come across a lot of SaaS founders in, that, in those kind of shows, but also productized services model is something that people have been talking about a lot for a long time. And as someone that was coming into this with no experience, with no network, with no kind of right to do what I was choosing to do, I wanted to pick a model that felt firstly like safe. It was a well-trodden path. I knew that. Also, I didn't have to have a bunch of upfront money to invest in this thing. I knew I could kind of make a very clear set of deliverables and then find, as I brought the work in, I could then find people in a contract basis to kind of slot into various pieces of that puzzle. And that felt to me like something that I could scale pretty well and in a very kind of predictable and safe way. And so that's what I'd really set out to build was kind of a lifestyle business, I guess you could say. So my background's in audio, right? So like I went to school for music technology and I worked in kind of audio post-production before I ended up working in sales and marketing and all that kind of stuff. And when I was looking for an agency to start, like what business should I create? I was listening to the podcasts to educate myself and I was like, oh, it should probably be in podcasting. I looked at all the other agencies in the space, that naivety, that hubris. I was like, oh, I, I could do better than that. 
Um, so that was really as far as I thought. I was like, this model seems good. And I think I have some value to add here. And then, uh, and it's just kind of snowballed from there. And, you know, it wasn't until I guess 2018 when I came to um, DCBKK that I really had a bit of a kind of turning point where I was like, okay, no, really the future of this, if this is going to last, I'm going to need to go up market. And that's kind of when we pivoted away from that productized service model and into something that's become a bit more sort of, I guess you could describe as like a traditional agency, but. Um, I love you right here. I could scale predictably, ultimately automate without the need of upfront investment since I had no money, like no money. I had <laughs> negative money. I had a lot of debt, you know? So that was not uh, a good place so to relatable. start a business. And that's like I said in the post, like it's, I don't advise people, you know, if you're, if you're reading this post or you listen to this podcast and you're trying to learn something from it, I would say the thing to learn is like, don't do what I did. I don't think it was smart at all, but I wasn't single, but I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. What's smarter and what was that turning point you referenced? So I think the smarter approach when you're starting from scratch is to do it as a side gig, you know, use your evenings and your weekends to slowly build up this thing. You know, I could have very well in this job that I was deeply unhappy in, I could have spent those 18 months using my spare time to create the first iteration of the website to start reaching out, do some of that cold outreach, wait until you get some, some sense that, hey, there's traction here. This, this is something that people want before you kind of take that big leap. And then the next bit is the turning point that happened in the 2018 timeframe. Yeah. So what I was noticing is, again, as I was looking around at like the podcasting industry in general, we were seeing a lot of growth in the industry, which is super exciting. But basically, I was seeing just a lot of the same. All the agencies around us, all the other productized podcasting agencies were just very... Well, there's a reason that I started that business. The barrier to entry was low. And that's just apparent looking around, you know? So I just realized that I'm not doing work that I'm excited by. There's really no picking me apart from the competition, apart from the fact that like, I guess I have a British accent and my website's a different color. Like we're kind of doing the same thing at a very similar price point. And so what that would inevitably lead to was just like, who's got the best SEO and who's willing to do it for the cheapest. And that's just wasn't, that wasn't a game that, that didn't seem fun to me. I get pleasure from producing, even though I don't produce them anymore. Like I love making things that I'm into. It was just like clear, like, hey, I need to really focus on our best clients and our best clients only and raise our prices. And that's scary, but I need to do that because it's the only way I'm going to kind of rule out these clients that we don't want more of. And what I soon found was that actually raising my prices didn't slow down the demand. If anything, it increased it and we got better and better clients. And it just was this kind of snowball. I mean, a lot of people, they want to do that. Tell me about the actual process of repositioning for larger brands? There's a bit of fake it till you make it, right? There's a little bit of just saying that you've got it and then kind of, you know, having the confidence to think that you can kind of back it up later on. But at the same time, we were working with some cool clients at the time. We just sort of brought on a show in the UK called Secret Leaders, which is like an entrepreneurship show in the UK. Kind of it was at the time, like right at the top of the charts in the UK business charts. And we got that literally through cold email outreach, but we, you know, ended up being great long-term clients with them. But yeah, the big push was really just to basically rebrand the website and make us look premium. So it's basically just like table image with you and... Totally, man. You obviously have to be able to back it up. Like I have to say, I can do this and then actually go <laughs> ahead and do it. But really, there's nothing stopping you saying you can do it apart from you saying you can do it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what happened. And again, it's, this is over six years. So it's easy to kind of tell it after the fact, but it really is a slow process. It's just like one deal after another. And then you kind of, you get this enterprise client and then you tell the next one that you got them and then you just kind of stair step your way up. 
How much do you think website design matters for a small agency? I think it's really important. Again, I'm talking about myself. Like I judge books by their cover. Like the website is the high street storefront. Like it's the thing that people, you know, they're going to judge you off that basis. And if you don't take yourself seriously enough to like invest in that and make it look good, then I don't know what else you don't take seriously. And I, I don't trust it. And that's, I'm sure that's wrong. I know there's lots of people that have websites and do amazing work, but like, that's just kind of how my brain works. And I think a lot of marketers also think that way. One of the conclusions you came to in the early days was that 40 to 50% gross margins, and that's over labor, I'm assuming, I'll let you clarify, isn't enough to grow a business, especially if you want to hire talented native English speakers to ensure the work is genuinely better than the competition. Right. So at the time, I thought 40 to 50% gross margin, this is the price we're selling it for this is what it costs to outsource all of that work to the various contractors. So it's literally just the cost of goods sold. And I thought 40 to 50% margin was, was great and adequate. But basically, that's really hard to maintain at that low price point. And again, it's like a domino effect. Like you need the good talent in order to produce the work that you want to be able to do and that you're saying that you're able to do. That forces you to increase your margin. And then as you start to scale and the team grows uh, around you, those kind of overheads and stuff increase as well. And then suddenly that gross margin that looked really attractive at 40%, you know, because when it's just me, when I was there in my bedroom and it was just me and one or two contractors, 40% was great because I just go straight in my back pocket. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I've got a team of 20 people. We've got all these software expenses to take care of. We're going on company retreats once a year. Like it's just not a sustainable kind of level of margin. So we've seen that kind of much more kind of around 60 to 70%, like 65 is where we tried to aim for. But I'm not a finance guy. We've actually started working with, with Rob Tabraca and his team at Insight Matters who have helped us kind of work on all of this stuff. And that's been huge. What is the main thing you've learned from bringing in a finance team? Historical trends have been huge. Just to be able to understand like what's our 12-month trailing trend on margin, on revenue, on profit, whatever that might be. And using that to understand on a much more kind of granular, much more reliable level, like how are we actually trending? Like I can look at our bank balance and I go, oh, great, we've got more money than we did last month. But that doesn't, you don't really know where things are going. So to be able to kind of look at those 12 months trailings has been really, really important for us to actually feel confident in our assumptions that, hey, we are doing well. Yeah. It's easy to forget about the deposit that your big client made like 60 days ago. Right. <laughs> yeah. Your bank account's fine. And you're like, you know what? I'll make a little extra distribution because we got family vacay coming up. Right. This is such a common small business thing. And then you find yourself having to write a check back to your business. Right. And I've been really keen to avoid that. But like, you know, I'm also like pretty far on the conservative end of the spectrum. Like I've still, I've only just started paying myself a decent salary like last year. Nice. And we've got like a lot of cash in the business to the point where like Robert and his team are like, dude, please take some cash out of it. This is getting silly now. Like take it out. So like I am starting to do that. But yeah. Again, what I've been advised by lots of people and I've, I've realized is that, it, you know, it feels comfortable and it, feel, it helps you sleep at night, but it also means that you're liable to make some crummy decisions too. You're like, ah, I don't know, whatever, we've got plenty of cash in the bank. Let's try it and see. Yeah. And actually, is that a good idea? I, you know, it might not be. If you had a greater financial constraint, would that still be the bet that you'd want to take? Let's talk about pricing. Um, it sounds like you came mm -hmm. to some pretty interesting pricing conclusions especially productizing, you know, there's this idea, well, what's so bad about having this, hey, I'll get your podcast on the web for 750 bucks a month. No questions yep. asked. 
there's nothing wrong with that. Like if that's what you want to build, productizing is, can be a really great idea for lots of people. But I think oftentimes it's more about what the founder wants and what you want to create as a business owner than it is about what the market actually wants to buy. And ah. that's totally fine. <laughs> well, no, it's not fine. Tell me more about that. But you've got to make that decision consciously, I think. Because that's one of the virtues of productizing in theory is like, okay, I'm going to make something at 750 bucks a month for a podcast. And then I'm going to talk to Harry and he's going to say, ah, it doesn't really fit. And I'm like, great. On to the next person. And I'm going to yeah. sell them what I do. And this is going to yeah. make me a better marketer. I'm going to have a better funnel. I'm going to have a more consistent process. But you're saying that in that strategically interesting idea, you can be insulated from what the people actually want to buy in the marketplace. I think so. I think, again, this is all my perspective and my experience, and I'm sure there are loads of examples to the contrary. So my experience, though, is to maximize the value that's out there waiting. There's like money swimming around waiting to be spent. And the way to maximize that is to give individuals what it is that they want, right? And so forcing them into the box of this is the 750 bucks thing, do you want it or not, gives them this binary decision and forces your hand in what you're able to create. Whereas by not productizing, for example, we've, we're able to create a podcast for a brand, which is, you know, could have been a talking heads interview style show, but it's ended up being like a semi-fictionalized, dramatized kind of thing with multiple characters. And it's set in the future. That doesn't fit into the box of we'll edit your podcast once a week. But, you know, they're obviously willing to spend a lot of money to create something as creative as that. So yeah, I think that it can definitely work. It's very, very predictable. It's very scalable, this idea of having a productized offering and only offering that thing. But you have to make that call consciously because yeah, as you've said, your job then becomes how do I market better than my competition? How do I price more efficiently? How do I keep my costs as low as possible? That to me is a less exciting game than how do I make the best thing that I possibly can? There might be some relationship between the complexity of the operation versus the complexity of the sales process. So as an example, a lot of the early productized services theory came from like web design firms. And this idea that you're sitting across from some founder who's literally like dreaming up all different kinds of what you're. I mean, I've been in web development firm sales conversations where the founder is basically once like a SAP installation. Like, wouldn't it be great if I could, my clients could see inventory on my webs and you're literally in these sales calls all day long. Finally, someone comes along and says, just sell $2,500 websites. And you're like, that's the ticket. <laughs> yeah. But in the case of podcasting, it might be the case that operationally and creatively, there's a process you can run for all different kinds of shows. And maybe there's different operations better suited for bespoke deliveries. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I think like podcasting as a creative thing, it's the same as like, I guess, article writing or video production. It's really hard to kind of, consistency is difficult. You know, every client is different. They're recording a different environment. Some want to use the studio, some want to... I've just found it very, very hard to make that almost into a widget. And so you're right. Like if what you sell is WordPress web designs, like that's pretty templatized and you can do that on a pretty consistent basis. So again, I just wanted to be making cool shit. A big part of that is then people. You have to invest in the people to get that done. You can't kind of have robots that are only capable of doing that specific task. 
you need to have people that can kind of think laterally. Well, that's the other thing is that a lot of the productized services theory came from like the kind of medium middle market rush to BPO and to outsourcing. I mean, mm-hmm. everybody has had the moment where they realized how much English speakers on the other side of the world that are intelligent are willing to work for. And instantly you think of business ideas. I'm just thinking of a lot of anecdotes in my head where maybe because the productized service message, the SaaS message is so sexy that people just refuse to do high-end bespoke agencies, even though their skill sets are world-class at this point, because they're right. in the middle of their careers. They have a ton of experience and literally they could just charge whatever they want and they won't do it because they spent 10 years listening to podcasts like this one that says, right. we want a product. Two thoughts come to mind as you say that. The first thing is that recurring revenue is really appealing and really attractive. And when I thought about starting a business, I wanted a regular and reliable paycheck so that I wasn't stressed about where the next deal was coming from. Like what I really wanted to avoid was the kind of freelancer peaks and troughs thing. So I totally get the kind of desire to go after that. And by the way, like we still have that, like we are to some degree productized. We're not entirely like we do not productize. Everything is bespoke. No, we have like lots of clients that pay us on a recurring basis to produce a show every single week. And we have flex within those packages to like allow our producers to just kind of use their kind of creativity to work with whatever the specific needs are. But we have a pretty kind of standardized set of pricing and and deliverables that allow shows to get done on a regular basis. And that regular revenue is just like a really stable rock that kind of keeps us steady as we kind of work through more of these projects, which are inherently more spiky. That's what I found is that the combination of those two is just like magic because it means we're doing amazing work on one side, which is great for us to kind of do case studies around and great for us to market about and great for us to get creative gratification from. And then we have this stable of clients that are just kind of churning away and we're able to kind of benefit from the MRR thing. I think the the other thing that I was thinking of as you were describing that is like, well, what does AI mean to this? Because when, you know, productizing, and you mentioned finding offshore talent that could kind of do these things for us to make our service incredibly affordable um, or incredibly profitable or both. I think that while AI is coming for all of our lunches, I think that um, it's coming for the productized end first, right? Because you have a very clearly defined list of deliverables and you point chat GPT or whatever at, at it. It's not going to take too long, I don't think, for that to catch up and kind of, you know, make the drop the price even further. So I think for anyone in an agency business, certainly something I spend a lot of time thinking about is like, how is AI going to affect us? How do we incorporate AI? How do we embrace it? How do we not like be afraid of it, but instead like bring it in as soon as possible and try to figure out what that looks like for us? For anyone that's running a productized service and you're kind of married to that kind of model and good for you if you are, I'm not saying it's the worst idea, but I do think that like AI is something to be thinking about, you know? Hey, this is Dan. Just to remind you, if you love listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, thank you. Thank you for listening. Check out our brand new website. We just put it up. It's over at tropicalmba.com. Since we don't do news segments on the show every week, the most consistent way to hear about the stories from the thousands of founders that listen to this show every week is to sign up for our newsletter. And as a thank you for doing so, we'll send you a free copy of our book before the exit, some templates that we use to scale and hire in our business, as well as some other goodies. You also receive one email a week that outlines some of the key things that are happening in our community, at our podcast, and with the founders that listen to this show. 
So check out our newsletter on our brand new website over at tropicalmba.com. I'm wondering, uh, you have this idea that culture is everything, and I want to kind of dig into some specifics there because culture is one of those like heard words that I don't know what to think of it. Maybe you could bring us into the moment where you decided to bring on a COO. What does a COO mean to you? You describe yourself as creative builder, which I think a lot of people that build things, they just end up at some point running a company. And then right. there's this idea that you really need a COO or a GM or someone to help. Can you walk us through that process a little bit and you know how culture came from that? Yeah, that definitely describes me like a company has kind of appeared around me and now I find myself having to figure out what that means and what my role is and how I navigate that. I could paint it as this like genius move on my part, but actually this COO in particular found me like it, they came to me and it was through a very kind of strange turn of events. I was looking for an assistant. They went to quit their job, talk to the COO. He was actually looking to leave he ended up coming and talking to us and saying, hey, it looks like you probably need some help on operations. Um, so that's a very bad retelling quickly of what happened. But we got together and, and just hit it off. Like I liked him very much. And I was aware of all of the things that I was struggling to stay afloat on. Like there was just so much email, so much stuff. And our operations were suffering. Like I, you know, we didn't have process. We didn't have all of these things. The hiring funnel was non-existent. It was just me figuring it out every time. So met him and it just made complete sense. This is what we need. Um, as soon as I met him, I was like, oh, this is, I didn't realize this was my problem. But now, now I see. It was a huge bet. Like it was just the first six figure salary. I was earning much less than that at the time. So I brought someone on that was getting paid more than I was. Another rite of passage. Yeah. Yeah. It was a scary, scary bet, but it paid off a hundred times. He's been phenomenal and uh, kind of instrumental. And on the culture piece, I think, you know, like I said, he found us. And the reason he found us was because he'd had this connection with an ex-colleague and whatever I'm doing right, like I struggle to give myself credit for everything because I'm very British and self-effacing. But the point is, whatever I was doing right, I was giving off the right vibes to the people that were looking for jobs with us. What he was able to do alongside me was really kind of embody this culture that I hadn't actually defined or decided existed and help me to scale that basically. So that's been the mission. And Adam, our COO, has been kind of just an incredible partner in doing that. It was nerve wracking to make those commitments, but moving forward with confidence in our long-term performance paid off and would have totally hamstrung us if we haven't. How? Right. I'll never forget, there was a time I was on, on a Zoom call with the team and this was when we were like six people and we had one producer who was just like a rock star and she had come from journalism. She wasn't like a podcast producer. She was just a writer and she came in and was just crushing it. She was amazing. But she was really the only producer that was capable of doing the kind of higher quality work. And I remember there was a time where I brought in a new deal and I was so pumped for it. It was Stanford Graduate School of Business. I just landed this deal and we were going to create one of the best podcasts that we sort of landed today. And I was like there on the Zoom call, like, hey guys, we've got this amazing deal. And I remember like Isabel is her name. And she, she literally went, <laughs> and I was just like, because she was so tired and stressed and overworked and she couldn't keep up and she didn't want us to get more deals. And I was like, this is not how we need to live. So what I mean by hamstrung is that basically the more deals we sold and the, the more ambitious the productions were that we were working on, we literally wouldn't have been able to sell them because we wouldn't have had the team to deliver them. So what happened when I brought on Adam as COO, we kind of identified, okay, where do we think we're going to be in 12, 18 months time? 
what does the team look like at that point so that I can go out and sell confidently knowing that we're going to be able to deliver that stuff. And let's hire for it now, even though that's scary and we, it doesn't feel like we have the money to do it. But if we don't do it, then I'm going to be landing deals and there's going to be more people like Isabel's pulling their hair out going, I can't, I literally can't deliver this. So I'm going to die. Tell me about that sales process, Harry. I, you know, the key terms of this interview are nerdy, builder, yeah. a company appeared around me. <laughs> COO, hiring process. Okay, someone is bringing in deals here. You went from the quiet co-working space where you're waiting for emails to come in to all of a sudden, you're cutting deals with world-class institutions. Walk me through how you generated your leads and how you're converting these large deals. Practically speaking, what happened was the first few deals were done through cold email outreach. And then we sort of migrated to this new brand that was bringing in a lot of kind of inbound through SEO and all that sort of stuff. So in terms of like lead generation, it's all been very much kind of, since we've stopped doing cold email, it's all been sort of um, organic inbound stuff. So basically an SEO strategy. An SEO strategy, exactly. And, and that's, again, just why I think kind of investing in the website is just like so, so important. But when you start an SEO strategy, don't you feel like a dope for writing articles about the best podcast? I mean, what kind of articles are we talking totally. about here? Because there's so much content on the web now. I was just, talking with someone who advocated yeah. for an SEO strategy, I'm just like, I don't know. I feel like I'm just 20 years too late. <laughs> so I agree. Like it feels like it's 20 years too late and I don't enjoy writing those articles. And so I'm not the one that writes them. So that's one thing. But the, the other thing is that like, it's still really important. I can't see a way around it. Like it's still really, really an important ingredient. And there is a mixture obviously of these crappy articles that you're not really that bothered about putting into the ether. But then also some thought leadership pieces that are really valid and probably don't have as much SEO value, but they're like more about when someone finds this and chooses to read it, they will see us as an authority. So there's kind of a mixture going on there. And what I've learned is that you do need those kind of less interesting, less exciting articles in there to just signal to Google, hey, we're an authority in this space. So like, it's just kind of like, you got to eat your greens. It's yeah. kind of like, it's not fun. You're not proud of it, but you just got to get it done. I guess you're proud of being your green, so it's not a very good analogy. <laughs> so now your inbox is busier because you're getting referrals, you're getting SEO. And what right. does the actual sales process then look like? Very consultative is basically the main thing. I, until sort of the last probably 18 months, didn't have much of a process around how we did this. And I've really formalized that and kind of nailed it down, which has been huge. But until then, it was really just a succession of calls being very consultative. And I really put down my success to just like being a just a complete and total nerd for this stuff. Like I just yeah. live and breathe podcasting. And so I just can speak incredibly confidently about it. And then I just also put it down to the fact that I'm kind of a, an unassuming rather un what's the word unthreatening kind of pacing. You're not British. pushing them for the sale. Right. What we've added recently is a bunch of process. So we have like a, an introductory call where we understand what their needs are, see if they're a fit for us, which feels much more of like them qualifying themselves. And then we have a second call where we do more of the pitching. So it doesn't feel like basically the entire design of the process is, is to not be pitching so much. You know, it's more about like, hey, look, we're, we're very lucky. We're gainfully employed here. We don't need as such your business. We would love to work with you if we think that there's a fit, but it's okay with us if there's not. But I, I would say that having a process, a really dialed in process is really key to make it kind of a more predictable system. One of the interesting things about your write-up is you you went to work for the team and you said, what I'd do if I had to start from scratch today, acknowledging that luck and timing are critical things. So 
what are some things that wouldn't work about your incredible journey if they were to be replicated in 2023? Yeah, I think you'd have a harder time with the cold email outreach, which was you know, central to my getting started. Because when you have no brand, you have no network, you've got to go out there and start banging on some doors. So what that would look like uh, right now, I don't know. It might be LinkedIn outreach instead, but I feel like that's getting a bit tired now too. So like, I honestly, I don't think about this a whole lot right now. So I don't know what the new versions are. I think you're, you, you're very close. I think it would be long form content on LinkedIn. And right. even like maybe like a four minute video, and this could go on TikTok as well, where you're mm-hmm. nerding out about high-end podcasts. That's still content marketing though, right? That's not like yeah. knocking on, hey, so-and-so could, you know, we should work together kind of thing. I would then send it to people on Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Sorry. I agree. So that wouldn't work. I think that, like I said before, I think we're really close to the point at which the productizing model is in danger of being, you know, I don't, I'm not a doom and gloom store. I actually think it's really exciting. If we can spend the time to learn, like, how is AI going to work with our businesses? It's yeah. going to unlock a huge amount of super exciting stuff that's going to allow us to do different, more exciting work. And it's definitely going to make us more efficient. So I think that's huge. I just think it's impossible to get around. Like if I was starting a business today and I was doing it in the way that I did it six years ago, I'd be pretty nervous around whether I would still be around in a couple of years time. Interesting. So I think that's a big one. You'd create a simple one-page website as nicely designed as I could afford. Well, at the very beginning, SEO, like the, you know, the thing is with SEO is the best time to have started it is as long ago as you possibly can. So like you want to be working on the SEO side, I think, as soon as you can. But the fact is, if you're putting up your shop and you're saying, I'm a podcast production agency, you just need a site that says that. And it needs to look, again, depends on what kind of market you're going after. But in my opinion, the nicer you can make that look, the better. Because it's going to, yeah, people are just going to take it seriously. Number seven is interesting to me and it's worth flagging up and a theme on the podcast, which I want you to walk me through an example. Spend as close, and I'm quoting you, to zero time as possible doing any client work, reinvest as close to 100% in growth. It's so easy to get bogged down in the detail of doing the thing, especially in the early stages. You're the only person, I mean, even now, I'm the only person that cares about this business as much as I do. So like no one else is going to go out there and knock doors down for you. So you need to be spending all of your energy doing that because it takes a lot of energy. And so it's really, really easy to get sucked into doing client work And if I could go again, I would start again, not doing any client work from the very first stage. That's obviously hard to do if you don't have startup money to hire someone right out of the gate. But that would be the ideal because it's so easy to get sucked in and then you work your way out and then you get sucked back in and then you work your way out and you get sucked back in. So I think it's important that you have as founder an understanding of how the sausage is made. It's important that you understand like what it is that you do and what you're selling. But I think it's important for us as founders to spend as little time doing that as possible and putting the right people in place that are more talented than us to do that work and go around focusing on your brand and on your marketing and on your sales. I think one of the most challenging parts of business, there's all these operational things, of course, but just getting that sales flywheel, that deals flywheel coming where that inbox isn't crickets every morning, that there's business all around you. What does it look like to get there in terms of like work routine and time? It kind of annoyed me that it was true. I didn't want it to be true. I was like, I'm not, I don't fit into a box. But it was the flipping 
thousand days, man. Like it was honestly, <laughs> once we hit that thousand days, I was literally exceeded my salary from when I had a job before. And I think it's the same in basically all sides of the business. I think hmm. it takes a couple years, at least it did for me. And I know that if you started again, knowing what I know now, it wouldn't take me that long, but it did take three years to kind of build up that brand awareness, that brand equity, the, just the SEO work took that long to kind of kick in. And I would say it was really around that time that, that then kind of the pipeline was full and it was, you know, it was enough to kind of scale and scale. So you said at the top, no one cares as much about your business as you, but one of your key takeaways from this journey was that entrepreneurship's not healthy. Are those right. two things maybe somehow connected for you? Totally. I think that like, I happen to be lucky that my business was in the right place. I don't know that you have to be as obsessed as I am to see that, again, the level of success I've seen such that it is. But I think that it's a big component to me having got to where I've got to. So there are much healthier ways to approach this where you give yourself much more balance. You work 40 hours a week and no more. But I, yeah, I guess the trade-off is usually, not always, but usually slower growth. And like I said, it's addictive, but I love it. Like this is really fun. I enjoy what I do on a daily basis. And I find the problems that I'm solving and what I'm trying to achieve, like very, very compelling to get up in the morning and do. So I wouldn't have had it any other way. But yeah, if there's a way to do it without the stress and with more work-life balance, I'd love to kind of find it. So we cannot do an agency episode without addressing the elephant in the room, which is end games. At the top of your post, you say you had this a horrible boss who told you you were never going to amount to anything as an entrepreneur. You proved him wrong. Way to go. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but, but, but you said that you wanted to exit this thing after five years. And here we are right. many years past that and there's no exit. How do you think yep. about running an agency and like, you know, you're talking about making financial risks to bring on more team and what are potential end games for Lower Street? It's something that I think about a lot. We talked about balance. I've actually just spent two months in Australia doing a much, much less work while I've been over there. And so I've really had some time to kind of think about what do I want to do? I think the middle of last year was such a high intensity in terms of where we were at as a company, the growth and the stress that came with that. I was very, very keen to sell just because I, I just needed an out. I'm like, I'm burnt out. This is hard. I can't keep this up. And I think after two months of perspective and actually the recent episode with, um, with Sam Floyd and the other chap, about kind of taking Neil. those sabbaticals. Neil, super interesting. And I think that, um, yeah, that time away, it wasn't a full sabbatical, but I was like very, very light on work. Uh, and that time to just sort of breathe a bit and think about what's important has been critical. And what I've realized is that basically the meat and potatoes is the multiples on agencies stink. So I could keep working to get this company to a certain level, at which point the multiples become a bit more interesting and that's like probably another at least one to three years of like pretty solid grind to get us to that kind of like EBITDA level where we can then kind of reach another level of kind of multiple to make the exit more, more worthwhile. What I have right now, though, is a company that I'm very, I find very compelling on a daily basis. I enjoy getting up and working on it. I have a team of people that I like being around. I'm working now on, hey, I've been gone for two months. So what does this mean for the business? What does my role look like for the next period of time? Like. I can work on maybe things that I want to work on rather than things I feel like I have to work on. And uh, it's an agency with decent margins. So it's a good cash flow business as an entrepreneur. Sure, I could grind away at this and then go for a big exit and kind of really 
think about living when I hit that point. Or I could just go, actually, hey, what I have right now is something that's going to give me that same financial outcome just over a longer period of time if I can continue to find a way to find this as fun to do on a daily basis. And so right now, I feel really good about that. Like, you know, ask me again in six months or in 12 months. Might be a different story again. I don't know. I'm not kind of ruling it out. But, uh, but right now, I think the most kind of the best financial decision and the most kind of gratifying decision and the least stressful decision is to keep doing this thing that I'm proud to have built. Hopefully we can ask you in six more months. We'd love to hear totally. uh, your progress. Harry Morton, thanks for joining us on the TMBA pod. We really appreciate your time. Dan, I've got one more question. Can I ask mm. you one more thing? Of course. What is the small... Per- I've been listening to this podcast for a long time and I've always <laughs> wondered... I can't give away. What is the young person saying at the very end of the podcast? Babadi! I don't know what that... What is What's it? What's nuts is the young person is now like nearly graduating high school. She's a full, almost Wild. adult. She's saying, yeah, buddy. <laughs> that was like, I put my hands up and just say, yeah, buddy. Amazing. I always wondered. There we go. Many thanks to Harry Morton, founder of Lower Street Podcast Production Services. You can find them over at lowerstreet.co. Also, as a bonus, Harry has been kind enough to let us publish a partial and public version of that amazing DC deep dive here on this post. So click through on your iPod. I don't think iPods have that functionality, but if you have an iPhone or an Android or some other smartphone, just click through on it. It's so simple nowadays. It's incredible. I don't know how you guys made podcasts back in the day of iPods. Did you have to go to a recording studio and put it on wax? No, there's this finger motion. Remember when you had to roll your finger around like a rotary phone to get to the song that you wanted to play? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We know you're going to have to prepare ahead to figure out which podcast that you would like to listen to on your next horse and buggy ride this <laughs> Sunday coming up with the family. We hope that you'll choose the Tropical NBA podcast for your next Sunday cruise. That's it. We'll be back next Thursday morning, Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.